0: James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. You adulterous people. By the way, isn't that a great way to start a sermon? (laughs) You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, there's a lot more here in this section than many of us may realize. And it's actually in this section of scripture that we probably haven't heard taught on very much. And this isn't this isn't feel good preaching right here, is it? And this isn't the kind of preaching you hear in a lot of our churches today. But in this section of scripture is actually a key to releasing God's grace in our lives, and that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. The Bible is very clear that God is a gracious God who desires to bless us with Himself first and foremost, and all that comes with Him—love, joy, peace, example, just to name a few. But God only gives grace to who, according to verse six, the humble. So what I want to do is I want to kind of illustrate this to you through God's dealing with the nation of Israel. We're not going to cover all of God's dealing with the nation of Israel, but just a couple of examples from this. Go to Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, we're going to look at verses 37 through 39. And once we kind of get a picture of how God deals with the nation and has dealt and will deal with the nation of Israel, hopefully it'll help us go back and reread the book of James In the section we're looking at tonight to see how God wants to deal with us. In Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, this is as Jesus came to the end of his triumphal entry. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, keep in mind, they had already just said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here he's talking about his second coming and he's talking to the nation of Israel. But don't miss what he says. He said, I wanted to. My grace has been offered. It's, It's extended. I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. You weren't willing. And now because of that, there's going to be consequences. We see in James chapter 4, verse 6, that God not only gives his grace only to the humble. What does he do with the proud? He opposes them. He resists them. Now go to Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to show you what is going to happen to the nation of Israel at the end of the tribulation period. If you know anything about what the prophecies say, at the midpoint of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to step into the wing of the temple, declare himself to be God. He's going to go after the Jews. Many are going to run into the wilderness, and there they're going to be protected for three and a half years. That's when they're going to realize. That Jesus is the Messiah. They're going to look on him whom they pierce. They're going to weep and they're going to mourn. But listen to Hosea chapter 2 verses 14 through 23. Therefore behold I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. By the way the valley of Achor is going to be important later on tonight. And I'll make the valley of Acor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you'll call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I'll make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I'll make you lie down in safety, and I'll betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I'll answer, declares the Lord. I'm going to answer the heavens, and they'll answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I'll have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. God's grace has been offered to Israel over and over. All day long, he's held out his arms to an obstinate people. But because of their rejection of him... They missed out on his grace and he's opposed them for a season. He's now saving us Gentiles. He's doing this church age thing in the time of the Gentiles. And it's going to come to a close and then he's going to go back and fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel. But he's going to have to do what to the nation of Israel before they can receive his grace? Humble them. He's going to have to humble them. You know, the Bible's full of many places and we could have easily looked at all of them and it would almost become comical. If you realized. I don't think many of us realize how many times the Bible says whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. It's not just in one spot. It's in like four or five or six. Jesus kept saying it in many different times. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. I don't know if you caught it yet. You're going to be humbled either way. Did you catch that? You either humble yourself or he'll humble you. Being humbled is in your future. I think it'd be better if we humble ourselves though than if God humbles us, but so he's going to humble the nation of Israel and he's going to offer his grace again and they're going to receive it. Now, remember how he said he's going to take the valley of Acor and make it a door of hope. The Valley of Achor is actually an important reference. Go back to Joshua chapter 7. If I were to ask many of you, what's the, a Valley of Achor? What's that? You might not be able to tell me. But once you see it, you might even be a little more confused. In Joshua chapter 7, look at verses 10 through 13. And then we're going to look at verses 22 through 26. Now let me set the stage for you. The nation of Israel is going into the promised land. God's told them that they can defeat Jericho, but he's told them take nothing. No spoil. Everything is devoted to the Lord. You don't keep anything for yourself. Other nations when or in other battles at other cities, whatever plunders there you can keep, but in this one you don't keep anything. Well, there's a man named Achan who disobeyed God. He saw a bar of gold and some silver and a nice robe and he hid it in his tent. And so the nation of Israel goes to defeat the next little city Ai and they lose. And because of this, Joshua and the people of Israel are falling down before the Lord saying, what's going on? And in Joshua chapter seven, verses 10 through 13, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. O Israel, and you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Now jump down to verse 22. They went through the whole process of finding out where God showed them who it was. In verse 22, So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to joshua and all the people of israel and they laid them down before the lord and joshua and all israel with him took achan the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had and they brought them up to the valley of achor and joshua said why did you bring trouble on us the Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned his, from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And God tells the nation of Israel, I'm gonna the, turn the Valley of Achor into a door of hope. Well, what did God do at the Valley of Achor? He displayed his wrath towards sin. I don't know if y'all caught this yet or not. What did he do at the cross? He displayed his wrath towards sin. He poured out his wrath on his own son instead of us to display his wrath. We got to keep this in mind. At the beginning of the nation of Israel, God did something severe. To display to the nation of Israel as they're coming into the promised land, not the, their beginning, but if they're coming into the promised land at that beginning, he did something very, very severe in the dealing harshly with the sin of Achan and had his whole family destroyed in front of them all to show them sin is still serious. I'm a gracious God. I'm a forgiving God. I'm a merciful God. But sin is still serious with me. By the way, he does the same thing at the beginning of the church age. Right after the beginning of the church, there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, And all they did in our eyes was lie a little bit of how much money they actually gave to the church. And what does God do? He strikes them both dead. Aren't you glad God's not striking everybody dead in the church who lies? But at the same time, he was in the same way showing at the very beginning of this dispensation. Sin is still serious and it's still I'm still a holy God and I want you to take me seriously. And so we need to understand all of God's wrath towards sin was laid on Jesus. Go to first Peter, chapter two. Let me show you a couple of passages that kind of lay this out. First Peter, chapter two, verses 24 through 25. First Peter, two verses 24 through 25. It says he. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jump back to Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three. Look at verses 11 through 14. Faith in God's provision for our sin, God's wrath towards sin on our behalf. What did God tell the nation of Israel? Until this sin is dealt with, you can't move forward. And it was dealt with severely. And in the same way, until mankind's sin was dealt with, which God dealt with it at the cross, we can't be saved. But here's the good news. It's been dealt with. And his grace is now being offered. And how do we receive it? We just read it. By faith. We'll go to Romans chapter 3. Go for it, Dave. Those, those people that God took wrath upon, mm-hmm. so, I mean, they were believers, though, right? You, which ones you talking about? you talking to Achan and his family? We don't know whether or not they were believers. I mean, so we don't know. Okay. We just don't know. But when it, Ananias and Sapphira, I believe, were Christians because Peter says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You know, in other words, the Holy Spirit that was lying, living within them kind of a deal. But in, in James, sorry, in, in Romans chapter three, look at verses 19 and following. Now we know that whatever the law says, it, sa- it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, they've been pointing to it all along. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has dealt with sin. Remember he says, until the sin is dealt with, you can't move forward. Now he's dealt with sin. Once for all, there is no more punishment for sin that hasn't already been made except for those people who reject God's payment for their sin. They will one day receive the punishment for their sins and especially the biggest one that they rejected God's son who paid for their sins and they trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant, which sanctified them according to the book of Hebrews. Those folks that are going to be in hell, they're not in hell because they were liars and adulterers and stealers. They're in hell because they rejected Jesus. The, all the things they did were just to show that they needed a Savior, and their real sin for going to hell is rejecting God's payment. Oh, but, and because they rejected God's payment, they're also accountable for all the other stuff that they've done as well. That was already paid for, but they didn't receive the payment. So what I want you to understand, though, is this. God is a gracious God. He's a forgiving God, and he's wanting to give us grace. But we only can receive it if we're humble enough to say we need it. Go to Romans chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, before I read any further, we got to stop real quick and let's, let's deal with something that's coming off of this verse. Would we not agree that we're living in a world right now where everybody loves to point out everybody else's sins? And how right now in this cancel culture, people are pulling up videos of things people did in college or whatever. And now you can't serve in the government or whatever. Everybody loves pointing out people's sins. And God says, do you really want to go there? Do you really want to be held accountable for everything you've ever done? There's nobody that's not able to serve in the government. Then if they can pull something up and make you disqualified, none of us are capable And here we have a world that loves pointing out, well, I don't want anything to do with you because you did this back so many years ago. Oh, be careful when you start doing that because in the measure you judge, it'll be held against you as well. And you who judge do the very same things, but keep reading. We know, verse two, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Remember, we read earlier in chapter three that his forbearance in his forbearance, he passed over former sins. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed Folks, James is writing to a group of people in the church who some are believers and some aren't. And we don't know. Only they would know. And we don't know who else is here is and isn't. That's up to God showing each of us. But he's saying to all of us, people that are lost, people that are saved. I'll give you grace. If you humble yourself and acknowledge you need it, I'll give you grace and save you. If you'll realize you need a savior and you ask and believe that I'm the only one, I'll give you that salvation and that forgiveness. But for those of us who are Christians, we need to understand that God says to us, look, when you play with the world and when you trust in the things of the world and when you get your pleasure from the things of the world, I see it as unfaithfulness to me. And by the way, he takes it serious. Do we need to not be reminded again of what he did with Achan and Ananias and Sapphira at the beginning of each of those time periods to show us how serious sin is? God takes it serious. So let's go back now to our passage from James and look again at these verses anew. Realizing that he's writing to unbelievers and believers and that we should each respond accordingly accordingly. You adulterous people, verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? By the way, you're never going to find that specific quote What it is is a compilation of what the Old Testament had been talking about. The spirit, if you notice in your Bibles, is a small S. It's not a capital S. The spirit that he's talking about is not the Holy Spirit that he's caused to live live within us, but our spirits. He wants our spirits. We've been made body, soul, and spirit. And the spirit part of us is the only part of us that can connect with God. And he wants that so badly. He desires for us to know him and for him to know us in that saving relationship. But then he goes on, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, when James calls his readers adulterous people, he's using language that the Jewish people would know very well. In Mark chapter 8, we don't have time to turn there. In verse 38, he calls this sinful world an adulterous generation. But go to Hosea chapter 1. Remember how we looked earlier at Hosea chapter 2 and how God's going to humble the nation of Israel and bring them into the wilderness at the end of the tribulation period. And he's going to offer them grace again and they're going to be humble enough to receive it at that time. But look at Hosea chapter 1 and what God has his prophet do. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, it says when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So God tells this prophet, I want you to go marry someone who's actually going to cheat on you. And not only does she cheat on him, she has kids that aren't his kids. That's why his kids are called not my people. That's one of the ones was named, not my people. That's why later on, he says, I'm going to take not my people and call them my people. And so what I want you to understand is, is God says to Hosea, go marry someone that's going to be unfaithful to you. And by the way, she's not only going to cheat on you, she's going to go off into prostitution and you're going to have to buy her back at some point. If you know the whole story of Hosea. But it was God using the prophet to be a picture of what God's heart was toward the nation of Israel. But why did he call them whores? Why did he call them unfaithful? Why did he call them adulteresses? Because they did what? We read it right there. They ran after other gods gods and forsook him. Go to Jeremiah chapter two. And by the way, every one of us is a little bit guilty, if not a lot bit guilty, of a little bit of this ourselves. As I came back from preaching that series in Virginia a couple weeks ago on Jesus' letters to the seven churches, I had to realize that as much as he wrote to those churches, a lot of those things he said to them applied to Jim Johnson a little bit as well. When he told the church in Ephesus, he says, you're going through the motions, you're doing the right things, you haven't even grown weary, but you've left me. You're doing the right things, but your heart's not in it. Realize the height from which you've fallen. Oh, you've allowed some sin to creep in to your life. You're still worshiping me, but you got some people there who are still playing with the world a little bit. And I don't like it. He then says to the church in Sardis, he says, listen, he says, you have the appearance of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and and, and restore what remains. In other words, you've gotten good at going through the motions and not doing it in the power of the spirit. Folks, if we're honest, all of us have had that a little bit, have we not? Where we work on obedience, but we're not doing that out of a love relationship. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 3, and listen to what God, 1 through 13, and see what God says. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? and went after worthlessness and became worthless. They didn't say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests even stopped asking, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law didn't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me, the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord and with your children's children. I will contend for for cross the coast of Cyprus and see or send to Keter and examine with care. See if there's been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods, but my people have changed their glory. For that which does not profit, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God sees his people forsaking him to go after other things as adultery, unfaithfulness. I don't know if you... You probably know this, but I want to remind you of this. Do you know you're engaged to Jesus? The Bible is very clear that when we trust him as our Savior and receive his spirit, we've got a down payment. He's already purchased us as his bride. Are we married to him yet? No, that's going to come when he comes and gets us and we go and have the wedding. And the millennial kingdom is the wedding feast that's going to go on for a thousand years. It's going to be a great party. But... At the same time, we have to realize we are betrothed to Jesus right now. Go to First Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul, writing to Christians or non-Christians? Christians. Christians. I, I presented you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that just like Satan deceived Eve, he's snuck in and tripped a few of you up, pulled you away from your pure devotion to Christ. And by the way, if any of you say, not me, be careful. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 9. Again, keep in mind, writing to the church, he says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. In other words, it wasn't his mother, but it was the guy, his dad was married to someone. And now he's sleeping with the lady that his dad was married to. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Sounds like he was a Christian. Who has fallen into sexual sin. And God says the only way that he's going to ever get this right is if he's humbled. Keep reading. Cleanse out. Well, he says, verse 6, you're boasting it's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jump over to 1 Corinthians 6, look at verses 9 and following. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I'm gonna ask you a question again. Is he writing to Christians or non-Christians? Christians. And there was a problem. That sexuality had become a problem to the point that actually there were people that were sexually immoral in many different ways. Some with lust, some with homosexuality, some with others. And he says, look, listen closely. Those who practice these things aren't saved. That doesn't mean that we don't fall into temptation every now and then. But as we're going to see later on tonight, there's a big difference between sinning and being convicted and hating it and wanting it to get right and being, well, it's not that big of a deal. And folks, let me just say this to you. There is a problem in the church today in which our church members, if you will, our churches are full of people who play with sexual sin in private and come to church and try to act like it's no big deal. And listen, God knows. I deal with pastors around the country and you'd be amazed how many pastors are addicted to pornography. You'd be amazed at how many people now are also even starting to go. Well, I'm not so sure that this is a sin anymore. Oh, by the way, in those letters to the seven churches, Jesus said to the church in Thyatira, he says, you get some people there that actually practice the sin that Balaam tricked Israel into doing. Sexual sin and they're acting like it's no big deal. And then he says to the next church in Pergamum, he says, uh, oh, by the way, now it's being taught as doctrine. In the first church, it had kind of crept in and people were playing with both. But then in the next church. Well, I think we got churches nowadays that actually have signs out front that say we don't see it as sin. God says it's okay. Oh, but by the way, maybe your struggle with the world's pull isn't sexual. Maybe it's monetary. Go to Matthew 6. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God says there's no middle ground. You either are fully devoted to me or you're fully devoted to money. It's one or the other. Either you're totally trusting in me for your provision or you're trusting in your bank account or your IRA Have you ever noticed that the things God wants to bless us with, a lot of times he'll come and say, "Okay, now give it back. Isn't that what he did with the with uh, with Abraham and Isaac? God came and says, I'm going to bless you with this child, this child you've been praying for and wanting for years. I'm actually going to give it to you and I'm going to actually bless the whole world through this child. And Isaac is born. And so many years later, God comes and says, "Okay, now I want you to kill him for me. Give him back. Now, Abraham is so worshipful and dependent and trusting on the Lord, he actually goes to kill him. The book of Hebrews tells us that he believed God was going to raise him from the dead because God said this is to be the one that he's going to bless the world through. And if he said to Messiah I was coming through this guy, then he's going to have to raise him from the dead because I so trust God and so believe him that he was even. Most of us would have said, God, you, I must have heard you wrong. This doesn't make any sense. Lord, thou shalt not kill. Well, actually, that hadn't been written yet. Put it in the right timeline. The law of Moses didn't come till many years later. But God many times will want to bless us with things. Having money is not a bad thing. Depending on money as is, is your source is a bad thing. But many times God will bless you and then he'll say, OK, now I want you to do something with that. I want you to give it away. Why is he doing that? Why does God bless us with a, a chunk and then say, now give it away? Why does he do that? He's testing to find out if our faith and love and dependence come from him or the money. And he says, Let me tell you something. You, you're gonna serve one or the other. You can't serve both. You can't. Go to First Timothy 6. And by the way, you're going to see something in this passage that goes against everything we're being taught today in many of our churches. 1 Timothy 6, look at verses 3 through 10. He, th- he just finishes at the end of verse 2 saying, teach and urge these things. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, before we go any further, we got to stop there and let that line sink in. They imagine that godliness is a means of financial gain. So if they're doing godliness for the financial gain, what is their God? The financial gain. We are to be doing godliness because our God has said that that's what He wants from us, and we do it out of worship. Whether we get a nickel, whether we get a pat on the back, it doesn't make a difference because we did it for the Lord. That's what He's wanting. That's what he means by don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't do your good deeds before men that you be seen by them. He looks at the heart for why. He wasn't saying don't let anybody ever know what you did because he, he broke that himself when he pointed out the widow. Remember how the widow threw out the, the two pennies in the thing and he pointed out. Look at everybody. No, look, 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 look how much she just gave. Jesus pointed out the widow's giving. He wasn't saying don't let anybody know what you give. But he was saying Don't give so that people will see it. You understand what I'm saying? And that's why you've got to to understand that God says not only sexuality and sexual things are issues that could make us put all our faith and dependence there instead of obedience to God. Money can be as well. And if you think that godliness is a mean to financial gain, you're more interested in the financial gain than godliness. Go to verse six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Go to verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. James calls this temptation from being fully devoted to Christ, being a friend of the world. But those of us who have been crucified with Christ should see ourselves, the Bible says, as dead to the world. Do we still live in the world with its poles? Yes. Are we still in a human body that's still under the curse? Yes. Do we live in a, spirit, a spiritual battle on a daily basis? Without question. But we need to be reminded that since we've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, we no longer live, but Christ lives within us. But we've been crucified to the world. Is Jesus affected by the pull of the world anymore? No, he died to the world. That same Jesus now lives within us. And as we walk with him and we put our eyes on him, not what he can give us, but on him. The pull of the world will go away. That's why it says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. James, chapter four, verse seven. Resist the devil and you'll flee. He'll flee. We focus on fighting Satan. Don't do that. You are never going to win. But if you actually focus on worshiping God and being devoted to him and trusting in him and saying, Lord, I don't know how this is all going to work out. But my eyes are on you. He will. He will. Give you power and victory in that situation. So much so that Satan will say, I ain't messing with this one because he's just got his eyes on Jesus and I can't touch him. Go to Galatians chapter six. Look at verse 14. Galatians six, verse 14. Paul says, but far be it from me to boast Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Go to Titus chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 14. There's that word again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's available to everyone To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Now, let me just stop for a second and let a lot of these scriptures sink in. Have you all caught on yet that most of the New Testament writings to the church were about the fact that, thank God you're saved. Now let Jesus finish working on you. Did you ever notice that? Most of the passages, and I haven't even touched half of them. Galatians chapter uh, five, verses 16 and following, Paul says, I say, walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Oh, the evidence of the flesh is and it lists all that stuff. But you need to be seeing fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience and so on. He writes to Christians, God is saying to us, thank him for your salvation. But now that you're saved, add to your faith, love and joy and Gentleness, self-control, knowledge. Folks, we're all in that process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Thank him for the fact that we are saved. Thank him for the fact that we are sealed. That the Valley of Acor has become a door of hope. The sin was dealt with. We can move forward now. Yet, don't just say, well, I'm okay. Oh, you're becoming a little proud. You need to daily... Offer your body as a living sacrifice. I'm going to challenge you to do something. I don't want to turn this into a law because once you make it a law, your flesh will not want to do it even more. But I'm going to encourage you to wake up every single morning and make your first thoughts, actions, whatever to the Lord. Here's why. Because you need him. Because you need him. Where you just say, Lord, I'm not going to check the stock market first thing this morning. See how it closed last night. Lord, I'm not going to check my sports team and see if they won or lost. By the way, I'm tempted to do that a few times myself because the Red Sox play sometimes out in California at night. And I don't know if they won and I have to wake up in the morning. And sometimes that's the first thing I want to know. And by the way, whether they won or lost now affects how I feel the rest of the day. But what if we woke up every morning and said, Lord, I need you today. You've taught me in your word that I'm to plan and I've got some ideas to what's going to happen today. But at the same time, you've also said to hold those plans loosely and to let you walk me through it. Lord, I'm I'm 58 years old. And as I look back over my life, I realize how only by your grace have I gotten this far. As I look at all my life, I'm amazed at the things that I've gotten to do and to see, and it's all by you. And Lord, you got a plan for my life. And even though there are some things that I'm, you're asking me to do that I'm not excited about, but I'm going to try to my best to do it with the right heart, I need your grace today. And folks, some of you need to spend some time not just talking to him in prayer, but also spending a little time in the word and letting God speak to you. Maybe maybe you got an old hymn book and... Nobody else is around. You don't have to worry about what they're listening to. But you might want to grab a hymn or two and just start singing some of the words of those old hymns or maybe a praise song or two that you might know that's recently come out that just brings you closer to the Lord and focuses on Him. And folks, if we humble ourselves at the beginning of every day, what will we receive from God for that day? If you don't get it, we have to start over. Grace. Don't you need grace? I need it. Don't you need mercy? Oh, I need it. And that's what he's asking of us. He's saying, look, I've begun a good work in you. I wanna finish it, but I only can finish it if you let me. Every day, just like I was to the nation of Israel, offering this grace, but they rejected it. Every day, I offer this grace to my children I want to live through you today, but you have to you have to humble yourself and acknowledge you need it. Don't get in the traffic jam, cuss, and then say, oops, God, where are you? Talk to him before the traffic jam happens so that when the traffic jam happens, you're so focused on him. The cuss doesn't come out. Go to Colossians chapter three. If then you have been raised with Christ, verse one, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Writing to Christians, by the way, or non-Christians? Christians. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, in these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. How is it being renewed? By his grace. How do we get his grace? By humbling ourselves and acknowledging our need of it and saying no to the world and yes to Jesus. Saying no to our flesh and yes to Jesus. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord's forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Hang on, Jim. This is wonderful. This is all great. I would love to live like this, but I can't. Good. You're already on the right track. This is the stuff that he produces as you focus him, believing what he has said, that he would produce those things in you as evidence of his spirit. By the way, this would be a great way to confirm whether or not you're saved. One of the best ways to find out if you're really saved is by trying to yield yourself to Jesus. And as you do, if he's in you, he takes over and there's evidence of him being there. If you're not, you're going to be more interested in going back to the world than is walking with Jesus. Go to 1 John 2. First John, chapter two, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, There's a big difference between loving the world and being tempted by the world. Do you understand? We're going to be tempted by the world every now and then. But for those of you that have fallen to those temptations, did it feel good? Did you feel like, yeah, not that big of a deal? Or did you hate it? I know for me, when I fall prey to the things of the world and I see myself act in the flesh instead of the spirit, there's an instant conviction There's a grief. I sense the quenching of the spirit and I can't get it fixed fast enough. Lord, that was wrong. Lord, I need you. But if you think. What's he talking about? I don't see any problem with this. Well, if you love the world, the love of the father is not in you. Go to Ephesians 5. By the way, again, more scriptures talking to Christians. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and following. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children... And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. By the way, does it seem like these might be some typical problems in the church? Sexual immorality, covetousness, evil desire. (laughs) I think we and and we might see it a little bit. But unfortunately, the church, as it gets further and further away from God, as by the way, if you look at the letters to the church in Revelation and the churches in Revelation, they get further and further away from God, even to a point that there's apostasy at the end. Folks, let me just say something to you. The whole church growth movement has hurt us because we've been taught to grow the church. Jesus said, I'll build my church. You just follow me, I'll build my church. And actually, he says, as we get closer and closer to the end. The true church will be smaller and smaller. Wickedness will increase. The true church will get smaller. Luke 18, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Narrows the road that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it. Oh, hey, Laodicea, you think you're rich and have need of nothing. Yet you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. All descriptions of the lost. Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I'll come in and eat with him, and he with me was written to the church in the last time period. Folks, don't be surprised at the fact that churches might be getting smaller, that it's easier for some to watch the service on their cell phones on the way to the beach every Sunday. Why? Because we, unfortunately, have been teaching that our focus is how do we make more people want to come? How do we make more people be comfortable? How do we change our music and our preaching so that people will want to be here? And how do we keep them here when Jesus all along was thinning the crowds? Lord, I want to follow you. Well, let me just say a couple things to you before you sign up. Uh, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the son of man doesn't anywhere to lay his head. you sure you want to do this? You might want to count the cost before you follow me. If you're not willing to give up your life, you can't me be my disciple. Upon hearing, Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, many of his disciples stopped following. Jesus turns to the 12 and says, how can we keep people from going out the back door of the church? We're losing people here. No, he turns to the 12 and he says, you guys are free to go as well. Jesus was thinning the crowds. We've been trying to get them bigger. Sell everything you have and follow me. Sell everything you have and follow me. Excellent, Glenn. You get it. That's the whole point. But that's not the preaching we hear. We're looking for churches that meet our desires and holy living is not preached. I don't think many of you have ever heard a sermon from James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. You adulterous people, friendship with the world is enmity with God. But, oh, let me encourage you. If you're being pricked in your heart, you're his child and he loves you or he's calling you to salvation. Either way. He's reaching out to you with for grace and you need to respond. I could go on and just keep reading how the the scripture just go on to verse. Verse 14. I'll go to verse 13. When anything, chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 13. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be being filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter our true spiritual condition, hopefully we would all agree that we need help. Oh, by the way, if you don't think you need help, I can't help you. And neither will God. God's grace and his mercy is available to everyone, but only to the ones who are willing to admit their need of it and receive it. Remember the story Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee went and prayed like this. Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe. I, I, I. Where was his focus on all he was doing? But the tax collector wouldn't even look to heaven. He just beat his breast and he said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God said, that's the one that got his prayer answered. We resist the devil by submitting ourselves to God. I'm going to close with reminding you of a story. I'm going to give you a quiz. You've done pretty well tonight. I'm going to ask a similar question that I've been asking all night. and You've been getting it right all night. Jesus in Luke chapter 15, you can look at it later on, verses 11 through 24, tells a story about two sons. It's called the story of the prodigal son in our Bibles. I wish it was called the story of the loving father because that's who the main character is. There's a son though that says, the younger son says to his father, "I I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance. You're dead to me now. Give me my money. And I want to take off. Now, most of us, if our kid came and said, I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance. I want my inheritance now. You would say over my dead body. (laughs) But the father in this story lets him go. Gives it to him, knowing full well what he's going to do with it. But he also knows the only way this kid is ever going to be able to receive my grace is if he gets to a point of brokenness. So he goes and he loses it all and he ends up feeding pigs and wishing he could eat what the pigs were eating. And he comes to himself. He's humbled and he says, you know what? I sure had it a whole lot better when I was a child of my father and even our servants had it better than I do now. I'm just going to go back and I'm going to ask him to make me a servant. And he prepared his whole speech and he goes back and the father is watching from a distance looking for him. And when he sees him, he runs to him. And he, the son starts his speech. Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And before he could even finish his speech, the father says, hey, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, new robe, let's have a party. Because my son was lost, but now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. Here's your quiz. The story of the prodigal son is in an illustration Of a lost person getting saved or a Christian who went away and came back? The answer is yes. It's both. That's his heart for the lost. That's his heart for the saved. Only you know your true condition. But folks, the time is getting short. Jesus is coming soon. And 1 Peter 4:17 that says this, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will it be for those who don't obey the gospel? There's a judgment coming on the world. Don't worry about that. God'll take care of it when it's time. Right now, he's dealing with those who are his, his bride. Make sure you keep short accounts. Daily humble yourself and acknowledge your need of his grace and watch his power be released in your life. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.